Hey, good morning, church, fellow COVID survivors. Well, amen. Glad that you're here this morning. And uh, some of you, I'm uh, just glad you're wearing a mask. Others of you have to, right? But uh, yeah, for some of you, it's it's an improvement. It really is. Uh, yeah, I, I like Mark Guy back there having a mask on. It doesn't hurt a thing, brother. Amen. Camille, thank you for taking him. Amen. It's good to see you all and uh, more and more seeing uh, our folks uh, returning and to worshiping the Lord. And uh, glad that you're here. Hope you're taking care of yourself and uh, doing all the necessary things we have to do in order to stay as healthy as we can. Now, what I want you to do right now is I want you to think of the worst person that you know personally. That's not in this room. Okay, so... The, the, well, I want you to just think for a moment the, 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 the worst person that you can think of that you know personally. And, and I'm, I'm talking about people that you're thinking that um, they're not anything like Jesus at all. And so you have that person in your mind. Uh, this person is someone who probably sins wholeheartedly and with impunity. They don't care. You got that person? Hope you know them. I want you to think of uh, that person that is highly unlikely to ever have anything to do with Christianity whatsoever. So you got them in your mind. It's the worst person you can think of. They're the person that they, in your life, uh, somebody you know, they sin. They sin wholeheartedly without any regret. And they are very, very unlikely to have anything to do with Christianity. And the question that would come to us then is this, might God save them yet? You may think of them right now and think, man, there's just no hope. They're just, they have no interest in the gospel. They make fun of it even. They are hardened in their sin and they're just as they don't have any interest. Now, I don't know what to do about them, Pastor. It's a burden on my soul, on my heart, but I don't know what else to do with them. And so what I want to just remind you of today as we look in First Timothy is just this thought, when God saves. Now, Saul watched a pastor be stoned to death. And the Bible says that he approved of the action. The Bible says of Saul that he hunted down Christians like a bounty hunter, men and women, and he had them imprisoned. He hated, he hated Jesus Christ, and he hated anyone associated with Christ. Now, we know on this side of history that Saul miraculously became a follower of Christ, and he became the most prolific writer of all the apostles as far as writing scripture is concerned his life testifies to this one fact God saves sinners the problem with the Pharisees was that they never could really become a sinner they were righteous at least in their own eyes and so the fact of the matter is God cannot save righteous people Especially those who are self-righteous. He can't save them. But God can save sinners. And when a man or woman comes to the place where they understand that. And are humbled by it. And broken by the fact that they're a sinner. Then God can save. God cannot save an unrepentant sinner. A person who will not repent. God cannot do anything with them. You ask, are there things that God cannot do? There's things that God cannot do. He cannot save an unrepentant sinner. So God is in the business of bringing sinners to a place of brokenness and humility and being, uh, having a view of themselves as being wretched. And this is why Paul says about himself in this 15th verse of this first chapter of 1 Timothy, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says of himself, of whom I am the foremost. And no one's ever surpassed Paul in sinning. At least that was his viewpoint. 
And God had saved him through Jesus. So I want to just take a look at Paul's life here for just a moment in verses 12 through 17. And I want you to see the saving power of God in the life of Paul. And having seen that, I want you to understand two things. One, that person that you thought of at the beginning is not out of the reach of God. And I want you to understand this secondly. You here today, you are not a worse sinner than Paul and God can save you today. Those two things I want you to know today when you leave here. Okay? So look at this. Now, Paul starts with uh, what God is doing with him presently. And in verse 12, he talks about when God saves, he gives purpose through service to Jesus. He gives purpose through service. Now look in verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, he's reaching back to verse 11 here for just a a minute. and, And he had talked about the fact that he had been given the stewardship of the gospel. That is, he had been entrusted with the task of taking the gospel to Gentile territory. And so if you think about Paul traveling thousands of miles on foot and horseback. Not on I-71, not even on US-23, not even on some of the side roads we have here, the paved road. He's, he was traveling on dirt roads and pig paths, as we call them. And he's going through territories that are inhabited by bandits and thieves. And y'all have never traveled those kind of places. I have. Where they jump out of the elephant grass and try to stop you so that they can rob you. Those, it's not fun going through those places. Many a good bandit has about lost an arm trying to stop me. So yeah, so I don't, I don't stop for them. So the, those kinds of things over and over again, Paul would endure. And so the question is, how did he keep going? How did he keep going with the times he'd been almost killed by stoning and been thrown out of cities and been put in jail? And so he had just come off of a Roman imprisonment here. And so he's writing this. And so how to endure? And so here's what he talks about his purpose. He says, God is giving me the purpose of being in the service. And the word there really means in service to the king. He's given me this purpose. And with giving me this purpose, he's given me the ability through Christ. He says, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. The strength that he has to continue on in the pioneering of the gospel into Gentile territories which are hostile to the gospel. This assignment has been given to him by God and God has supplied the ability to carry out the assignment. The ability to endure. That is the mark of Christian service. The ability to endure. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.25, it was by God's mercy that he is trustworthy and faithful. When we look at this, this verse 12, it says he judged me faithful. And it almost sounds like that God looked at Paul and said, you know, you're faithful. And so therefore, I'm going to give you this ministry. The reality is that God, the, the Lord Jesus, gave him the ministry almost immediately upon his salvation. When he went to Ananias and, and Ananias had, had prayed over him and He was going to baptize him. And the the Lord said to Ananias, show him the things he's going to have to suffer for my name. And so he, from the very beginning, he's given this ministry. And how could it be that God would judge him faithful? Here's how God judged him faithful. God would give him the ability to do so. Anytime a minister of the gospel begins to rely upon his own strength, he's in for a fall. He must rely upon the strength that Christ gives in Christ alone. There is no other place to get strength to continue to do this day by day. Never in my life, in all the years of ministry, have I had this thought, Lord, please take me home. Before I see any more of the stupidity and foolishness that is unleashed in our world, Lord, just get me out of here. I am so tired and so weary of being what I feel like is the only voice. I thank God for the pastor over at Lighthouse Baptist. Praise the Lord for him. (laughs) He and I are like, hey, you be Elijah and I'll be Elisha and we'll just keep going. There's so very few voices now today. 
It's, uh, we were singing song, uh, Martin Luther had written earlier, uh, the mighty fortress. And I thought about what he said about preaching. He said, anybody can get up here and let the spit fly. <laughs> That's what he said. But it takes the ability and power of God to rightly divide the word of truth. And so how do you continue to endure in that? Some of you have been teaching and ministering for the Lord Jesus in this congregation and even in other congregations prior to this. You've been doing it for years. How do you continue on? It's not because things are getting better. It's not because you always see the results that you wanted to see. Some of you are teaching little bitty children. Lord have mercy. It may be 25 years before you see the fruit of your labor. How do you continue on? It's the ability that Christ gives you. He will judge you faithful because he's willing to give you the ability to be faithful. He is willing to give you the ability to endure. And so endurance here is the issue for Paul. How does he keep on going? What, what keeps him from retiring to a nice condo in southern Israel now? I mean, he's done his part. He's suffered enough. He's preached. He's written. What else is there to do? But he continues on to endure because he has been given the ability to do so through Christ Jesus. Now, also in this purpose that God gives him, notice it's an appointment. The appointment is by Christ. The Bible says there in verse 12, he, he points out, he, he appointed me, appointing me to his service. Appointment to the ministry. The word there is a ministry. Appointment to the ministry is from the Lord. It is not from ourselves. If you are a pastor, you're a missionary. It's a different ball game. We, we've gone through a period of time in the church where people say, oh, it's all the same. I'm here to attest to you that it ain't the same. When I teach a doorway class, I take a few moments of pastoral privilege and I want, and I say to the people there, I said, now let me tell you something. I've sat on your side of the table. You've never sat on this side. This is a different animal. This is a different ball game. And I just want to ask you to do this one thing before you just jump out there and go crazy about something. Would you consider this fact? You have never been a pastor before. Pray for that man. You're in the ministry. It's, it's an appointment. It's not something you volunteer to do. I used to volunteer in the community. I used to volunteer to do extra things, volunteer to help coach. I'd volunteer, you know, so all those things are volunteer. I could walk off from those whenever it was inconvenient. Whenever it got too hard or when the leadership, I didn't agree with the leadership. But when you're appointed to the ministry, you don't get to walk off. When you're appointed to the ministry, you've been assigned something for life. It is a life sentence. You don't get out of it. And so when you know someone that used to be in the ministry, that's an oxymoron. If you've been appointed to be a pastor, you've been appointed to be a missionary, there's no getting out of it. It's a lifetime commitment. And this is what Paul is saying. We're enlisted. We're appointed by the king. Paul did not earn the right to be in the ministry. No one earns the right to do this. It's an appointment by God. And God appointed him to do so. There's no explanation for the continuance of these kinds of things except for the fact that God has enabled us and appointed us to do this. No pastor is ever going to be rewarded in heaven for the size of his church. The pastor will be rewarded for the faithfulness to the scripture and to the Lord Jesus. And it is God who will enable him to do that. Every Christian has also been given service to do. You are not going to be rewarded just by the how many kids you teach, how many teenagers you witness. You're not going to be rewarded upon that basis. The reward is on the faithfulness. Are you faithfulness? Have you shown some verity to the word of God and to the Lord Jesus who has appointed you? When you look at a church as a whole, what is it going to be? That, what, is it, what is required of us for the Lord Jesus to say to the church as a whole, well done. I would submit to you, we don't have to lead the state in baptisms in order to be set, be, be awarded by our Lord. Well done, church. We don't have to have the largest crowd. We don't have to have the most well-known pastor. We don't have to have any of those things in order to be acclaimed by the Lord. What the Lord is looking for us is faithfulness. He who endures to the end, the same will be saved. 
That's what the Lord is looking for from us. Now, certainly we should be faithful in our witness. But we have absolutely nothing to do with the outcome of the witness. Certainly we should be faithful in our teaching. But we have absolutely nothing to do with the outcome of our teaching. I've taught knuckleheads. And I've taught nice people. And everything in between. I used to go to the college, uh, university campus down at the University of Tennessee and just go to a luncheon and teach. Teach the Bible. And you're talking about fun. All those young people in there, like all the atheists and everything, they thought they were coming for a pep talk. Go there and do that thing. They would try to argue and everything. But I, I'm not responsible for convincing them. And that's what I would tell them. Young man, I'm not responsible for convincing you. I'm just responsible for telling you the truth. I don't have, it's not my problem. That problem's yours. Whether you're going to be convinced or not, that's your problem. It ain't mine. And so we have to understand we're not responsible for the outcome. And so we have to judge ourselves the way Christ will judge us. And that is, as he judged Paul, he judged me faithful. And so at the end of all of this, when you lay your head down for the last time and take the last breath that you have on this earth, will you be confident of this fact that the Lord Jesus has judged you faithful? That's what you're looking for. Sometimes uh, some of you are at the place in, in, in your life with physical ability and your ministry has been minimized as far as activity is concerned. Do you know what you have the ministry of? The ministry of showing up. I know this, I know that's a big effort for some of you guys. It's a huge effort. Just to, just to get here. Things don't work like they used to work. It's not only you've forgotten your, where you put your car keys, you don't even remember where you put your car. I mean, things have changed. And so you're trying to, you know, get ready and get to church and what should take you 30 minutes, the next thing you know, it's been an hour and a half. And you know what you do? You show up. You say, how can that be a ministry? It's a ministry of encouragement. You encourage the younger generations. They look around and say, well, you know what? People with gray hair have made it this long. I can too. They've endured it. I can too. They've had worse pastors than what we got now. I can endure it too. And so you, you encourage them to keep going. Part of wisdom, you, you show them wisdom a lot of times, but just keeping your mouth shut. Younger people don't know when to be quiet. Absolutely. They don't know when they've over-talked. And then they just spill over into stupidity. And you're just standing there going, oh boy. You're seasoned now. And you know when to say something in due season. You know when it's the right time to say and when not. You're modeling that for younger people. So you have been given a ministry. And it's not going to stop until you draw your last breath on this earth. So you just continue on. Whatever ministry it is in this season of life. You continue on. You endure. You do it for Jesus' sake. And your reward is that you're looking to be found faithful. That's what you want. So Paul said, this, this is my purpose. I've been given this ministry. Now, how did Paul get to this place? What happened before that is, is actually what happens next. So Paul is telling us a little bit out of order. He's like, you know, I've been given this ministry by the Lord. But, but wait a minute. Let me tell you how I got to that place. Let me tell you how I got there. And so he talks about when God saves that he grants pardon of sin. And so Paul launches into a little bit of his own testimony here about how God had pardoned him and forgiven him of sin. And so look what he says in verse 13 about himself. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, that is as the worst sinner. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, Paul talks about here his, his testimony and how God grants pardon of sin. He points out in verses 13 and 14 the resources for pardon. Pardon is not based upon zero. There's something going on. So what's, what purchases pardon, of course, is the Lord Jesus. 
What applies the pardon is grace and mercy. And I know in, in Islam, they're always pleading for mercy, but they have no basis for mercy. There's nothing upon which God can launch to give mercy. This Paul said the resources that deliver salvation to you are, are mercy and grace. In verse 13, he says, mercy, I received mercy. Now, mercy is what takes away the misery of sin. Mercy is what looks at someone with compassion and takes away the misery of sin. Now, grace, on the other hand, removes the guilt of sin. But mercy is there to, re- to remove the misery of sin. Sin is a miserable thing. I don't know if you all have ever been involved in any of it. But man, it's miserable. It always overpromises, And sin always hides the penalty. And sin promises and promotes itself as something that's going to fulfill your life. And that it's going to bring you joy. And it's going to bring you pleasure. And that the pleasure and thrill that it brings will never, will last forever and never go away. Some of y'all used to be big drinkers. You know, and you'd, you'd tie one on and boy, you felt pretty good, but man, in the morning, it's coming. Y'all did more praying back in your pagan days the morning after than you do now. Oh God, please help me. If you don't know what that's about, bless your heart. Sin is miserable. I've never seen anybody go through sin and in the end go, wow, wish I'd have done more of that. It's a miserable thing. It provides a momentary pleasure, but it darkens your soul. It offers the thrill of life, but it deadens your heart to God. Sin keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. Sin is a miserable thing. I call this the inward penalty of sin. And it is mercy. It is mercy that relieves you of the misery of your sin. The misery of sin could be a lot worse. But when you come to Jesus, he begins to relieve you of some of the misery of that sin. He begins to take the burden of that off of you. That feeling of guilt that you bear. That feeling of shame that is yours. And you look to the cross and you realize that Christ was shamed in your place. And now you can stand before God without shame. But instead you stand before him in honor because Christ has given his honor to you. And that's the mercy of God. And grace. Grace is dealing with sin's judicial penalty. I call it the outward penalty of sin. Grace is the undeserved kindness of God that pays the cost for our sin in the place of sinners, even though we deserve the full penalty of our sin. That's what grace does. Grace looks upon a sinner with kindness, though the sinner deserves judgment. Grace looks upon the sinner with love, even though the sinner deserves wrath. That's what grace does. And the Bible says that here Paul received grace and he received mercy because he acted in ignorance, the ignorance of unbelief. Now, to some extent, every sinner acts in ignorance. There really are no smart sinners. If they were smart, they'd come to Jesus. There are no smart sinners. In the spiritual realm, they have absolutely no ability to discern who God is and what he does. No ability whatsoever. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them or understand them because they are spiritually discerned and understood. So the man without the Spirit of God, the woman without the Spirit of God, they can't understand. So all sinners are ignorant in that way. But Paul here is saying, what he's saying about himself is this. He did not understand the implications of what he was doing. He thought he was serving God. He actually thought he was doing right. And because of that, he's shown mercy. 
Now, here's the thing. Is there a situation where God won't show mercy? Yes, there is. When a sinner becomes hardened in unbelief, it is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of God. And when that person begins to reject God knowingly and openly, guess what happens? Their heart is hardened beyond recovery. We need not under, we need to understand something right now, friend, though God's grace is great. And then though it is magnanimous, there is such a thing as sending away your moment of grace. There's a line that you can cross that you can never come back from. Julie and I were flying from Africa one time and we knew about where the point of no return was. And we got just about to that point and the pilot came on and said, oops, we forgot to fuel up. Such is the fun of riding and flying African airlines. And so we're over the Atlantic Ocean and going, well, this is fun. And they tell you stupid things about crashing. You know, these things you're supposed to do, they don't help. I'm just going to look out the window and see it. I mean, I'm just going to do it, you know. Those things don't help. I mean, you know, what what does it help to put your head down? That makes no sense. And like, and like you're supposed to be the one like now when you're, you're next to the door. And so when you crash, now you stand there and then you open the door and you help little old ladies down the slide. We're 200 feet underwater. What difference does it make now? I mean, I don't understand this. There's a point of no return. And, and sometimes people think they can keep on sinning and keep on sinning, keep on sinning. And then when they get ready, they'll turn to Jesus. But there's a point of no return on that. There's a place where you step over that line. There is a deadline and you step over that line. And when you step over that line, there's no coming back. Your heart will be irreparably hardened. And it will not hear the wooing voice of the Spirit of God. And this is what Paul was saying. Because he's probably referring here to Numbers chapter 15. Where the Bible there says when a person acts willfully... Think of, think of this. He acts willfully. He will be, listen to this, be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. Do you understand what the Bible is saying there? The Bible is saying when we sin with full knowledge against Christ, you better be careful. When you know the gospel, when you know it and you know it well, and you continue to refuse the gospel, you better be careful. Because there is a point there where you won't come back. This is why we can go to lands where there never has been the gospel. And you go in those places and a lot of times you preach and you'll get a great response to the gospel because their hearts are not so hardened. They may be in all kinds of paganism. Even Satanism and all kinds of crazy stuff that some of it's kind of even scary. And you go to those places and you see people begin to come to Jesus and you think, well, how could it be that God would save a witch doctor? Here's how. He's never hardened his, his life and his heart against the word of God. He's never heard it. But people in this nation hear the word of God all the time. They hear it and they hear it and they hear it and they hear it and they say no to Christ, no to Christ, no to Christ. And then when you try to talk to them about Christ, they have absolutely no interest whatsoever. This is a hardened nation. The people in this nation are hardened to the gospel. And the reason is because we've had such a great opportunity and we've heard so much. And I see now in this land that God is plucking from out of this land and taking home those great voices of the gospel and he's removing them from our society. Are you noticing that? The great and faithful pastors in the last probably 15 years, God is just taking them one by one and taking them home. And it's going to be true before too long. There's a famine in this land, a famine of the word of God. And that's what's going on. Why? Because people have hardened their hearts. Over and over and over again. Paul said, I was shown mercy because I didn't do that. I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was doing right. So if we know the gospel, we know the word of God, we've been raised in church, and you're going to refuse the gospel and refuse it and refuse it, you need to beware. You need to beware. You can depart from God however you want to, but you will come back on his terms. And you have to understand that sometimes his terms are too late. 
Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Do not harden your hearts like the children of Israel in the time of the wandering. That's what the scripture says. Don't do that. He begs people in the book of Hebrews, don't do that. Because hearts can be hardened beyond reach. So the resources for pardon are mercy and grace. And though these things are great and they're wonderful, understand that God doesn't have to be merciful and he doesn't have to be gracious. So the resources for his pardon. Now look at the Redeemer. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I'm foremost. The Redeemer. The only basis for forgiveness in the life of a sinner is the death of Jesus Christ. This is why you cannot get forgiveness in Islam. When you hear things like, may Allah forgive us of our sins and have mercy upon us, there is no basis for God to do that in Islam. He would have to be unjust. He would have to commit sin. He would have to be unrighteous to forgive sinners. Do you understand that? Even here in America, you have people that are supposedly raised in a Christian background and, and they think that God can forgive people without Christ. But the Father never forgives anybody without the blood of Jesus being applied. That's the story of the scripture all the way through. So here we have Paul reminding us that he was not rescued from the wrath of God and brought into the fold and be adopted by God because he was a good boy. As a matter of fact, he says the opposite. I was the worst sinner that you've ever seen. See, it's not really a big deal when God reaches a drug addict. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's not really that big a deal when God reaches a prostitute. You know what's a big deal? When God reaches a church boy. See, because those people, like Paul, are the worst kinds of sinners. They have a knowledge of God. They're around the things of God. They know about God. They can quote lots of the Bible. But yet, they're far from God. Those people are the miracle people. And so sometimes you hear people in church, they'll say, well, you know, I grew up in church and I didn't really get off into a lot of bad things. And I grew up in church, went to church and so on and so forth. And of course, I had some problem in my high school years, but, you know, after that and did pretty good, you know, not great in college, but after that. But then I didn't get saved. Till I was 30 years old. You know what that is? That's a miracle. Because those people were around the things of God and kept putting it off. And that's like Paul was. He was, he was around the things of God all the time. Paul could quote a great deal, a great amount of the Old Testament from memory. And yet, he needed a Savior. So Paul here says, Jesus came into the world for this purpose. Why did Jesus come? To save sinners. May I say this to you? Jesus did not come into the world for social justice. He didn't come into the world to feed the hungry. He didn't come into the world to heal the sick. He came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Those other things are acts of compassion from the Savior's heart. And we should have the same kind of compassion on people. But that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to continue the ministry of Jesus and to proclaim to the sinners out there, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst one he's ever met, so I know he can save you. That's what Paul was saying here. Now, look at the reason for his pardon. He says that in me, why, why did Jesus save Paul? And he, he gives us the reason. See, when you're reading the scripture, it gives you all the answer. And so here he, he gives the reason. He says... But I received mercy for this reason. See how I figured that out? It's really hard to get these points for your sermon unless you look in the Bible. And then there they are. I don't have to make this up. This is what's the great thing about being a preacher. I don't have to make anything up. I just say what it is, right? This is great. So I received mercy for this reason. That in me, 
as the foremost, that is the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so here's what he's saying. The reason for his pardon is this. The primary motive, the primary reason that God saved Paul was not to get Paul out of hell. Now, that is a benefit. And and Paul is so thankful for that. But that's not the primary reason. And in our evangelism, we have to change our reason for witnessing to people. Our witnessing to people is primarily not to rescue them from hell. Our primary reason is to display the mercy and grace and patience of God on them. It is to bring glory and honor to Jesus. That's the reason that we do it. That's what he's there to save for, to bring honor and glory to himself. That's the chief end of man, for those of you that know the Westminster Catechism. What is the, what is the goal? What is, what is it's all about? It's to bring glory to God. That's what it's all about. And this is what Paul's saying here. The primary motive that God has is not to, to necessarily keep Paul out of hell, though that will happen. The primary goal is to exalt the long-suffering mercy and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, in your Bible here, you have the perfect patience. And sometimes patience means something like enduring and irritation. The old word is really long-suffering. And what that means is that it grated upon Jesus' nerves. It means that it pained his heart to see the blasphemy and the insolence of Paul. And it means that there was anger and there was wrath that he continued to hold back and not display it against Paul. And when Paul becomes a Christian, when the Lord Jesus saves him, then we see that the long-suffering of Christ is glorified and exalted and put on display. And why do that? So that you'll have hope. So that that person you were thinking about at the very beginning of this sermon. You have to realize that if they're still drawing air. The long suffering of Christ is at work. If he waited that long on the Apostle Paul. He will wait on yours as well. He will wait. It is hurting him. It is aching his heart. He is the one that is enduring the shame. He is the one that they're making fun of. He is the one that is enduring them spitting in his face. But his long suffering continues. And so there is hope. Do not lose heart. I've told you from the pulpit before the story of my grandfather, and I, I reference it once again. My grandfather and I were extremely close. Uh, my grandfather Klein, and he was a big man, tough man. And I remember the, them telling me a story about them loading over 400 pounds of feed sacks on him and him carrying it. He was he was a he was a monster man. But I would try to, we got along, we talked about everything, and we had fun. He was always teasing me, doing things in the world for me. And I tried talking about Jesus, and he'd cuss me out. And he would tell me in no uncertain terms, when I want to hear that blankety-blank-blank, blank, I will let you know, and it ain't today. I'd do things like leave tracks in his bedroom. And I remember one time I put one in his shaving kit, eternal life. He called me up. Will you stop doing that? You almost made me cut my face off. So he, he just hated, he hated things of God. And he got in the hospital and I was in Singapore, Julie and I and time and we're in Singapore at the time and, and we're in a situation where we were not even allowed to tell our family where we were located. And my sister called the IMB and begged them, please, please put him in contact with us because his grandfather's dying and so they let me get in contact with him and I'm talking to him on the phone and he says well it looks like it's the end for me and I said what do you mean he said well they had me on this adrenaline and they told me I can pick the day when they stop it and on that day I'll die and so they told me it has to be one day this week and they said would you like Thursday or Friday he said I'll take Friday and he said, so Friday, and I said, I told him, I said, Papa, I can't make it back. They won't let me leave. And he goes, I, I know that. So I witnessed to him. 
Witnessed him over the phone. And for the first time he said, I'll, I'll think about that. And I knew hanging up that phone, I'd never talk to him again. And some old Methodist preacher went in there. And for some reason he hated Methodists worse than Baptists. I don't know why. And some old Methodist preacher in there, old man, the one that still believed the gospel, went in there and witnessed to him and he got saved. Yeah. Nobody's out of reach. His wife told me later, said, I've never seen such a change in a man. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Why? Because God was ready to reach him. And because Jesus wanted to display to everyone that knew him the long-suffering of Jesus. And how long Jesus will wait. Some of your children will read this year the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And they'll read the the descriptive writing of Edwards as only he can do and speak of sinners dangling over hell like a spider, uh, dangling over pit, a pit with just the string of the web, just ready to plunge into uh, hell at any moment. And you know what they never read and what they, if you're, especially if you're in the, in the, in the secular school here, you know what they never do? They never read the rest of the sermon where Edward says, but Jesus waits at the other side with the door open saying, sinner, come in. The mercy and long suffering of Jesus. If you're here today without Christ, I want you to know the reason you're still drawing air is because of the long suffering of Jesus. Jesus is suffering in your unbelief. And he's waiting. You can come to Jesus. Now look at the gains. When God saves. He gains praise. Praise for his supremacy. Look in verse 17. The Bible says here. To the king of the ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I noticed the guys have for me up there a clock. I want to let you know, guys, I've preached for the last 20 years without one. And it probably ain't going to work, but I appreciate it. Thank you. you get, our guys have a new program and a new toy, and they're loving it. So thank you, guys. Love it. He gains praise for his supremacy. Now, look, look what it says about God here. When you're thinking about God took this man who was an insolent murderer... And God saves him through Christ Jesus and causes Paul to put faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And then puts him in the service of the gospel to preach the gospel to the Gentiles at great cost to himself. Displaying for the world to see the long suffering of Jesus and that Jesus can save any sinner, even the worst one. Then what does Paul do with all of that? What is normal for every Christian if you truly understand and have experienced the grace of God. The result of all of that should be the praise for the supremacy of God over salvation. That God reigns supreme over all things. That man in the end is in charge of nothing. That even salvation itself is orchestrated by God. And that man is not in charge of the universe. And that man is not in charge of eternity. And man is not even in charge of who's going to be saved and who won't be saved. That God is supreme in all things. And so here's Paul says to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He highlights three attributes of God here. First, his sovereignty. He calls him the king of the ages. God is reigning from ages past, age present, and age the future. All the ages, God is king over all of those things. Every second, every tick of the clock, God is in charge. Every turn of the planet, every rotation of it, God is in charge. The variance of the temperature on this planet, God is in charge. Every cloud in the sky, God orchestrates. 
the size of it, the density of it, the color of it, the placement of it. God orchestrates it all. And when it comes to the lives of human beings, God is king over that as well. He's a king of the ages. Notice here also his incorruptibility. The Bible says that he's immortal here. The word immortal is used, but it's even more than that. It means that God is free from the decaying and degenerating powers that are at work through sin. He is immune in his essence to the powers that cause death. The Son of God added a human soul and a human body in order to experience death on our behalf. But his person can never really die. And I want to say something to you as well. Though your body is wasting away because of corruption and you are susceptible to decay, your soul now is immortal. And your soul, your personhood will exist forever. And at the resurrection, you will be given a body that then has the capacity to be able to endure for all of eternity. Now, that sounds like great news, but it's only good news if you're existing in that body in the right place. You see, because it's that same kind of body that will be cast into the lake of fire for those who have rejected Jesus. You say, I don't understand how you can be in the lake of fire and not be burned up because you'll be given the kind of body that won't burn up. That will feel the pain, feel the agony, experience the despair, but exist forever. On the other hand, for those who are in Christ Jesus, no more sickness, no more tears, no more dying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. See, that's the way it works. And so it can only be right that the immortal God would clothe you with immortality at the resurrection. And so he will. His invisibility. The Bible says that he's invisible. This is why faith is required. Every once in a while you hear people say, well, I saw Jesus the other night. I'm like, no, you didn't. You lying dog. Y'all, y'all swayed by stuff. It's just crazy. But you know, you didn't. He's invisible. Thanks. When we get to heaven, he'll be visible, but he's not visible on this planet. We're here with the invisible Holy Spirit of God now. God in his essence doesn't have a form. He's invisible. This is why faith is required. We have evidence of God. The scriptures being primary. We have evidence of God. Strong evidence of God. And so we believe based upon the evidence. But we haven't seen him. Because eye hath not seen. Ear hath not heard. Neither hath entered in the heart of man. What God has prepared for those who love him. So we don't see those things. We walk by faith, not by sight. We don't wait for God to prove anything to us. We believe what he says and we do it. And we find out that as we do it, he proves it. So we, we, that's how we live. We live by faith. Faith is our kind of sight. Faith is our other sense that the world does not have. And faith is that which is produced in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God, through the scriptures of God, so that we believe what God says about who he is and what he does. And so that's how we live. We live by faith. We serve an invisible God. People sometimes will say to you, prove to me God exists. You don't have to prove anything. I told one guy not too long back, oh, he'll prove himself one of these days. If I were you, I'd consider what I'm telling you. Those kind of things don't rattle me. The stupidity of human wisdom. People think they're wise. I've got one for you, preacher. Whoa, but I've never heard it. It's almost as bad as Jim Rucker's jokes. I've heard them all. (laughs) Thank you, Brother Jim. Love you, brother. It's the art of pastoring, acting like it's brand new, right? Faith is required. Now, so what do we make of this? Jesus Christ saves sinners. That's what I've been trying to tell you. I don't know if I got that across or not. Jesus saves sinners, even the worst ones, even those who've killed uh, Jesus' shepherds, 
He saves those people. Even those that are so bad that they would break into people's homes and drag men and women away and put them in jail just because they believed in Jesus. God saves those people. And whoever that person is that you're thinking about, the worst of the worst, someone perhaps in your family, someone you work with or whatever, the worst of all, you have to understand that Jesus saves sinners. Saved from what is the question. Saved from the wrath of God. But also saved from the absence of a relationship with God. Could you imagine going through this world right now alone without the presence of God in your life? Saved from that. Saved from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. Saved from the penalty of sin. Being saved from the power of sin. The power of sin that enslaves and rules people's lives. Sometimes people think in their mind, I'd rather not do what they're getting ready to do. And they do it anyway. Why? Because sin is their king. Sin is in charge. And the Lord Jesus saves you from that power. And then bless God, one of these days he saves us from the presence of sin. where We won't even be possible to sin anymore. And no one around us will be able to sin. That's called heaven. That's how Jesus saves. What is the condition that you must meet in order to be saved? Two things. Two sides of the same coin, really. Number one, you have to give up the right of lordship over your life. You have to give that up. It's called repentance. You have to give it up. You just have to say, I will no longer be in charge of my life. Been there, done it, it's ugly. I will no longer do that. Secondly, I will not trust in myself. I will trust in Jesus and what he did in my place on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I will not try to earn salvation. I will not try to make it up to God. I will simply rest in what Jesus has done for me. And then this. Believe that he rose from the dead. And remember the lordship issue in in repentance where you give it up. Now you give it up. You give it over to Jesus. And say now you are the Lord of my life. And when you make that kind of transaction with him. That's how you get into relationship with him. And Jesus says that anyone who comes to him in that way. He will never cast them out. He will never throw them out. Whoever believes on me in that way has eternal life. Jesus says, whoever believes in him like that is the, gets the resurrection and the life. So you believe on him in that way, to that degree, then you will be rescued from the wrath of God. Someone's here today. There's somebody here today. You've never really trusted on Jesus like that. You've been to church. You've heard stuff. You've made some kind of movement toward God at some point in your life. But you never, with eyes wide open and a heart full of love, ever trusted on Jesus like that. I want you to do it today. And so we're going to sing here in a moment. We're standing and singing. I want you to come. And you just come to me and say, Pastor, I I want to trust on Jesus like that and know that I have eternal life. I want that in my life. And we'll help you to know how to do that. Man, woman, boy, girl, makes no difference. You come while we're singing. Now, maybe somebody's here is like, hey, I'm looking for a church home. Let me just tell you, this is this is it. And so you just come and say, hey, I'm looking for that. And we'll help you to know what steps to take next. Let me pray for us. And Pastor Dan's going to come and we'll sing a song of invitation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that by the power and working of the spirit of God, you would take your word, apply it to our hearts, each and every person, every individual here, according to your will and according to your desire for us. Let meet the need in our lives, Lord through the application of the word and draw us into truth. And God, give us the faith to respond to that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.